Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Good evening. My name is Renton Rathbun. For those of you that may not be familiar completely with who I am, um, I've known Andrew for a long time now. Years, years, almost double digits maybe. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, it is great to be with you. It's great that uh, Andrew is gracious enough to let me come and speak. Um, let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, begin in Ephesians 6. Let's start with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have to think on your word. Lord, really to think your thoughts after you. Pray that your spirit would work in us deeply, that our hearts would bow before your word, and that we would repent of our sin and come running to you. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please turn to Ephesians 6, if you would. We're just going to read verses uh, 10 through 19. Verses 10 through 19 of Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist, the, resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view... Be on the alert with all perseverance and, peti- and petition for all the saints. In, uh, just recently, we uh, have been informed of uh, George H.W. Bush's death. He is known for being the president during the Gulf War. Uh, In 1991, July 10th, I entered the military. It was my first day of basic training. It was was an eye-opening day. Um, I had joined the military because uh, my father had come to my room one day and said, how uh, are you planning to go to college? And I said, yes. And he says, well, how do you plan to pay for that? And I said, I'm not sure. I haven't thought about that. Just about to be a senior, no worries about that yet. Um, 
But I started to consider the military. And so I joined the military for the, for the main purpose, I would even say the sole purpose, of paying for college. They herded us onto this big truck where they, we were informed to shove our heads into our bags so we wouldn't look around. We didn't know why we had to do that, but a very large man uh, told us to do that, so we were afraid, so we did it. Uh, we got off the truck, and we were told to take everything that's in our bag and dump it onto the ground, which in the middle of Missouri was very, very dusty. It was 110 degrees out, and uh, we just dumped it all out there. We had uh, drill sergeants walking around screaming at us, calling us all kinds of names. Now, this was back in the 90s, so you're still allowed to be unpleasant to the soldiers back then. I don't know what it's like now. But uh, it, was, it was rough. Uh, we were yelled at uh, for two months, told to do push-ups uh, in places where our hands were on scalding rocks. There were times where a young man could not do the push-ups, so the drill sergeant stood on his back so that when he's resting, he could have someone standing on his back, and when he doesn't like that, then he can get, keep doing the push-ups again. At one point, um, they herded us into a room and told us, this was after a few weeks of basic training, they told us that uh, uh, there's been a complication in Iraq which requires the army to send more troops than ever. And that's why they had to interrupt our training to send half of us to Iraq that day. They even had a truck outside waiting for us. And the drill sergeant said, if I call your name, you need to go to the truck. It will take you to a C-130 that will then take you to Iraq, and you will uh, start serving there immediately. You're all infantrymen now. Uh, some guys were excited. Some guys started crying. I was just terrified. I remember thinking, how, is my, how are my parents going to know that I died? Because I was convinced that I'd be the guy that dies pretty fast out there. Um, and uh, they started reading names, started going down the list. I was following. They did it in, in, uh, in order, and so I was listening for the R's, and they got to, to the R's, but they didn't speak my name. And I was so relieved. I was convinced this was absolutely real, that whoever's name was called was basically going to their death. Um, we all believed it. Uh, it was terrifying. Um, the guys went out, they put him in the car or in the truck, and the truck drove off, and we were just, whoa. And then the, that's when the drill sergeants went into a class on how it is we are to respond if we are captured by the enemy. And man, did we pay attention to that class. Um, the, the people that were called came back, and they told us that it wasn't real. And... Uh, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because the reason why they were doing this is because they're dealing with a group of young people who have lived their life in the Reagan era. We, were, we didn't know what war was like. I mean, really, even after Desert, Desert Storm, I mean, we know what it looks like on CNN for planes to blow stuff up, but we really didn't know what war was like. We were Reagan kids. We were at peace. We didn't know what war was, and so these men were trying to deal with young people that had no idea what war was. 
that were foolish enough to join the military just for money for college and not because they were willing to give their life for their country. And so we were unprepared. We had no idea, even back in 1991, we really had no idea the kind of danger that lied in the Middle East um, because 10 years later we would realize just what kind of uh, war we were going to be, be at. We thought we were at peace. We thought that there was no real emergency, but those drill sergeants understood better. Those drill sergeants, uh, some of them were in special ops, which meant they had been fighting even during peacetime, doing special things that no one ever will hear about. Another one was actually in Vietnam when he was a teenager. So they had seen things. They had watched friends die. They had watched people die. They know the dangers. They know how easy it is to think, even on the other side of the lines, how maybe you might be safe. And then someone dies, and you realize you're never safe. And now imagine you have to deal with young people that have no idea what war is like. As we look at this passage... I can't help but to think that we as a church, in this church age that we live in today, is that we are a bunch of Reagan kids. We've seen a lot of peace. And it seems to me that when the enemy really starts fighting, we still don't know we're at war yet. What I want to try and get across today is that the powers against us in this war are of the highest and most authoritative power that darkness can provide. And we are unprepared and in some cases unaware that it's even happening. But hopefully, by the end, we will see that resurrection power of Christ in us is capable of fighting this fight. So, let's look at Ephesians. Uh, In a perfect world, we would have studied all the way through the book until this particular uh, passage, and we'd have all this stuff we can rely on, but we don't have that. So I want to give you a quick overview of Ephesians. This is the thing. When you teach something, uh, usually what I do is I start with a big picture, very general, and then we get closer and closer to things that are more practical. And I think that's what's happening in Ephesians as well. It starts very big, and it gets more and more and more practical down to where the rubber really meets the road. Um, I think sometimes we think that happens a little, it stops a little soon, but I'll show you that really what I just read for you is really where the tires uh, meet the road. This is where it really gets to the most specific and most practical you can possibly imagine. And Paul's talking about spirits and darkness and things that seem to us as out there somewhere. But Paul isn't working that way. We start in chapter 1, and we see that he first talks about who God is and what he's done. God is a God who saves. Um, he, He greets them with this long greeting that describes what's going on 
even before the foundation of, of the world, in verse, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption. And he goes on to talk about this big picture. What happened? God saved us. He is a God who saves. He's a God who saves through sacrifice, through blood sacrifice. He does this because he is characterized throughout the Old Testament, as we learned this morning, which was really exciting, is that our God is not the God that has been painted for us today by typical evangelical churches of what I call the prom queen God, the God who sits in heaven waiting for someone to ask him to the prom, and no one will do it, and he just loves everyone so much, he doesn't understand why no one will will receive him, and he's just so filled with love, and he's this hopeless romantic that just no one likes, but he really wants him to. He wants to be relevant. And what we find, a very different picture in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 15, uh, the Israelites are saved. God, who is a covenant God, who who meets his covenant obligations, saves his people from, from Egypt. And Moses sings this song, and he says, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. We have a warrior God as a God. And in uh, Jeremiah 50, uh, 25, it says, The Lord has opened his armory and has brought forth the weapons of his indignation, for it is the work of the Lord, God of hosts, in the land of the Chaldeans. Lord of hosts, when you see that, it's talking about um, the word there is Sabaoth, and it's the God of hosts. What's the host? Is it just a bunch of... Uh, we're talking about a God who is in charge of a bunch of angels who sits in these white robes and these beautiful wings and these effeminate hair with the effeminate looks of these effeminate men that sit and the, all the only thing they have is this beauty of their glittering garments. He is the warrior God who is the Lord of armies. Armies. Now, what I want you to understand is it is important to know that when God chose to create, that's when he became a warrior God because in that creation, he also made a covenant with the Father that he would be their, their salvation. Now, all throughout church history, there's people debating why did God choose to save us this way? Why through blood? Why through sacrifice? Isn't God powerful enough to save us with a thought, a forgiveness, a tilt of the head, you're forgiven, and that would do it? There are people that there's been 
very famous theologians that have said, yes, he could have done that, but he did it a different way. We don't know why. We just have to trust the Lord that that's how, that was the best way. And that was during a time where doing things the best way was important, a very cultural thing that was uh, a part of those theologians' mind and the way they thought. And so it made sense that they would think that God would do things the best way. And that's an interesting take, but I would even put it this way. I think there's enough evidence in Scripture that says when God does something a certain way, he is expressing a part of who he is at his root. And who God is, part of, I want to say part of since he is equal to his attributes, but the idea is if we have a just God, then that just God, when you have creation that has fallen, is going to be a warrior God. It is a part of who he is. Blood sacrifice was necessary because there's something about God himself that sees blood as necessary and fighting as necessary. He is, a, he is the Lord of hosts, not hosts of, of choirs, hosts of armies. So this is the kind of God we're talking about, one who saves. And why is this important? Because chapter 2 then tells us who he's saving. He's saving us. What are we like? This is what we're like. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And those famous two words, but God. The warrior God stepped in. And made us stop fighting him. But he didn't stop us from being fighters. He stopped us from fighting him and made us his sons and daughters. But he didn't stop us from being fighters. He raised an army so that from the dead so that we can do his work. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God is doing this work. We have this warrior God who saves. He saves us who didn't deserve it so that it took all of his work for us to become what he wanted us to be. So that in chapter 3, he then talks about, and don't forget, These Gentiles are part of this. Just so you understand who's in your ranks with you, you need to understand that in the ranks are the Jews and the Gentiles because here's the mystery that I wanted everyone to to see is that the Gentiles are rightfully part of the hosts of God. They're not a side issue. They're not a parenthesis. They are a part of the whole people. This is why in John 10, 6, 
Jesus himself says, there are sheep that I have over here that are go- I'm going to bring them in to the flock, and the two flocks will be one flock, one shepherd. God's people are one, not two. And so now that we know who's in our ranks, chapter 4 tells us how we are to be in our ranks. We are to be united. An army that isn't united where you're willing to die for your brother isn't worth anything. One thing I learned in the military was how uh, the men that you become close to affect you. Um, had a sergeant who took me under his wing and decided, he was an unsaved man at the time, and he decided that he needed to mentor me. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know what kind of a man I would even be today. I don't know if the choices I would have made would have been the same. He did this because as a soldier, he spent a lot of time at the, in Korea, where his life was in danger many times. And so when he met me, he decided, these young men need mentors. And I don't doubt that he would have been willing to die for me. And I don't doubt that I would have been willing to die for him. That's what made the American army strong for so many years, is that you had men that were willing to die for each other and for people they didn't even know. And here, Paul is calling for that same kind of unity, the kind of unity in which people are bonded together. You see, as Christians, we have a bond much stronger than the fear of death. We have a bond much stronger than a job we have. We have a common bond in Christ. Chapter 5 then gets really specific. How is this unity going to work? We have a situation where unity does not come naturally to the body. So how are we specifically going to unify ourselves? And as you look throughout piece by piece of chapter 5, as he gets really specific, he starts talking about how first using that funnel again, how we're all supposed to be united in love and that all this is supposed to happen because of our love for each other, because of the light that's within us. And therefore, we're supposed to be careful how we walk, not as the unwise, but the wise. Sounds very general, so he narrows it again. Because we do this because we're filled with the Spirit. That's how we're able to do this. What does it mean to walk wisely? It means that you are walking in the Spirit. And what does that look like? It looks like a wife subjecting herself to her husband. That's what it looks like. It looks like a woman who is subjecting herself to her husband the way she would subject herself to Christ himself. It looks like how a man loves his wife the way Christ himself loves the church. That's what it looks like. And he goes down this list of what it means to submit you have this big list of submission. He starts with the, the general idea 
on, in verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, what does that look like? It looks like wives submitting to their husband. It looks like husbands submitting to Christ. It looks like, it looks like children obeying their parents, submitting themselves to the parents. It looks like servants submitting themselves to their masters. That's what it looks like. It's submission. The climax of this way we're supposed to act with each other climaxes in this submission. And so we have this this funneling down, and it doesn't seem like it could get more specific or more practical than this. I mean, what's more practical than children obeying their parents? Or as some people have have interpreted this uh, as far as uh, servants um, submitting themselves to the masters, how we submit ourselves to our to our boss. And these ideas, does it get any more specific than that? Any more practical? I mean, we have a lot of children here. We have a lot going on at our house. I see my kids disobeying, and I have to work to make them obey. And it doesn't matter if they're 2 years old or 18 years old. It's a lot of work, and it's not pretty work. It's not interesting work. <laughs> it is just work. It's part of how the leader of the house submits to Christ. It is practical. And so what does Paul do? How does he get even more practical than those things? He gets more practical than those things by saying, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on armor. This armor is of God because you're going to have to put out these flames from the devil. You're going to have to stand firm because the devil is coming for you. Let me explain to you some things that are probably, to me, the hardest things to deal with are words that seem weak in Christianity. Things that seem weak. You want to know what seems weak in Christianity? The things that we as Christians are the most afraid of. Start talking to someone about demons and the devil. It's not very academic. No one really likes talking about it. When you hear a lecturer in the academic world speaking about Luther and how Luther believed Satan came to him himself to to do business with him. They always talk very apologetically of that. Well, you know, that was the medieval mind. They had this superstitious view of things. And so we, you know, Luther was a brilliant man, you know. He, he just had these lapses of craziness where he thought the devil was after him. But, of course, we know that couldn't be true. And so here Paul says... This is the most specific I can get for you. This is where, really, you think it's that day-to-day grind of submitting to your husbands? You think it's the day-to-day grind of, submit, of children submitting to their, to their parents? No, this is where it really gets specific. This is where we can really see things. All of this is about your fight. All of this is because you're not at peace. All of this is because there's a war going on, and how can you not see it? 
The war is going on between you and all these people. You have a hard time with people in your church. You have a hard time with people in your home. You have a hard time with people at your work. And this is not just a happenstance of personalities. This is a fight. You're at war. You've already seen the demons, and you're ignoring them. The struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness. Think about these terms. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You are not at war with minions. You're not at war with the small count, the little bit of demon that was low in the ranks. I appreciate some of the things C.S. Lewis has said, but some of the stuff he's done is a little irritating in that. And, and the, you don't have to share this view. There's nothing spiritual about this view. But the screw tapes letters have always bothered me because, first of all, it envisions this battle that God is, is worried about, that he's losing people and He's trying to get these people, and the demons are trying to get this person, and which will this neutral being choose? But what really bothers me is he acts like there's these, there's demons of a lesser kind that aren't as scary or as, as uh, fierce or dangerous as maybe the high-up ones that, of course, wouldn't touch you because you're just a normal, everyday person, Right? You sit there, you're watching cable on the weekends. Why, does the, why would someone way up in the ranks of the, of the demon world care about you? They're going to go after people like MacArthur or something like that who has a name where you could really embarrass him. That sounds more like that makes sense to me. What would he care about me? I'm some schlup that's just trying to make ends meet and make my kids obey. What, what does he care about me? And here, it seems that Paul is saying, no, you have a lot of reason to fight. Because it's not just the small ones that are coming after you. It is the main ones. It is the rulers are coming after you. The authorities are coming after you. You, the one sitting on your couch, the one that maybe failed today and didn't do well as a leader in your home or didn't do well in your submission or didn't do well in your obedience. You, who are just on your way to work, they're coming after you. The the, the translation in Greek is the cosmic powers of the darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies, are coming for you. This is not a new section that Paul has decided, okay, now that I've done the practical stuff, let me tell them about this this little metaphor about the demons and warfare and how we should be good Christians. And I'll use this, uh, this metaphor of warfare to really get them to understand what we've got going on here. Uh, so this will be a new section. We, we got the practical, the stuff that makes sense, and then we got this other thing that I'll just, you know, this, this more poetic idea. That's not what he's saying. If you look closely, 
He's already referenced referenced this in chapter 1. He says this in chapter 1. Look at verse 19. Uh, Well, let's start in 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, which he raised from the dead and seated at the seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. Does this sound familiar? And power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. This entire book was to make you understand that you are at war. He told you who your commander is. He told you who are in the ranks. He told you how it is that it is possible for you to fight. And it's through the submission of yourself to the Lord. And in that submission, there is great victory because God is the one who is going to win the victory And not without us. This is where I get frustrated often when I hear messages on this because it sounds almost as if the pastor is saying that God has, and the words I'm going to say are true, God has already won the victory. He's the one that fights for us. As if, ah, good, I can sit back. How does he fight through us or fight for us? He fights for us by fighting through us. Yes, it is not your strength. But he's doing it through you. Who was it that empowered Samson to be so strong? It was not his muscle tissue. It was not his genetics. It's not because he worked out. It was because he was given power. It was not his power. It was God's power. But when Samson came to fight the Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey, he didn't just stand there. He did it because the power was in him to work. This is brought out in chapter one, where a sentence is written by Paul that almost sounds dangerous for me to say out loud, but it's in the Bible. If I were to keep reading in verse 23, um, let me start in verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, comma, which, and as you know in English, when you see comma, which, you are describing that Thing that was just stated. What was just stated? The church. So what is the church? Which is his body. 
And just in case you thought that was, that was a metaphor in which it was his castaway body, he really didn't need it, it's his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. A lot of ink has been spilt about what that means. Because I think a lot of people are afraid to say what it really sounds like. It sounds like Christ is completed through his body, which is the church. Now that would be, on one level, a very heinous thing to say, since we know that Christ is God, who does not need his creation, who does not need anything, which is absolutely correct. Which is why I think a lot of people that don't understand covenant theology have a hard time with this verse. They don't know what to do with it because they don't have covenantal um, categories to, to talk about. But if you have a God who has covenanta- covenantally said, I am going to be the head of something, the something needs to be there for him to be the head of it. So in his being, in his essence, he's not saying I'm completed. But in his covenantal work, in his covenantal um, sense of working with the church, the church is completing that covenantal idea that he is the head. The head of what? The church. It's a fullness. And uh, Calvin put it this way. This is the highest honor of the church that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are, his, we are in his presence does he possess all his parts or does he wish to be regarded as complete. That doesn't sound like a, a parenthesis to me. That doesn't sound like a plan B to me. That sounds like his people. His people from Genesis to Ephesians. And so what we find as we look at the last part of this verse in Ephesians 6, the last part of these verses in Ephesians 6, we see this warrior God has raised us to life in the middle of a war. We were already dead in the battle. There was no part of us that was still alive. There was no part of us that wasn't sin. And he made us alive, not for, for merely being alive, but to fight. The warrior God chooses fighters for his means. We have a God who is a covenant God, which means that he doesn't snap his fingers and by magic makes things happen. He does them in a covenantal way. What does that really mean? It means he does things by means. He controls the means. He makes the means happen. He gives the means power. But he does it through means, through a way. And he's given us life. Not just any kind of life, but resurrection life. As you look through the entire book, you see that in... Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it talks about this old way. You used to be this way. Now you're that way. Chapter 4, 17 through 20, you used to be this way. Now you're that way. Chapter 5, 1 through 8, you used to be this way. Now you're that way. The old way is, was independence. The new way is submission. The old way was lazy, lazy pleasure. 
The new way is disciplined love. The old way was ignorance. The new way is knowledge. The old way was easy. The new way is hard. The old way was disease, isolation, and rot. And the new way is resurrection life in Christ. This resurrection life, why is that an important phrase? It's an important phrase because we were dead. I want you to think about, especially in war, what death means. Um, When I was going through the military, we had Kevlar hats, we had Kevlar jackets, we had boots that were uh, laced pretty high. We had an M16A2 rifle. We had uh, we had uh, pockets and junk that strapped all over us, up to about 70 to 80 pounds of gear that we would wear. We'd have all those things because all those things are designed to beat death. I mean, really, when you're in the military and you're working towards a goal, especially during war, that goal has to be completed. To be completed, you have to beat death to get to it. Every power is given to the soldier to fight death. And as you know, soldiers die. Soldiers die because no matter what kind of power you have, eventually death wins. It beats every power available. Some of us know this better than others. And so what is resurrection power? Resurrection power is the power that not even death can beat. Resurrection power is that power that was used when the Father and the Spirit resurrected Christ from the dead. That kind of power. And that kind of power is in us if we are in Christ to fight. My concern is that we sit here in the middle of a war where the greatest authorities of darkness are coming for us, where we have been given the power of Christ in us, that in us Christ wishes to fight, and we sit. We are not dangerous people. Jim Elliott, as many of you know, was a a missionary in Ecuador where he was killed by the Indians there when he went to witness to them. His wife later came and witnessed to them after he was killed by them. When Jim Elliott was 21 years old, he uh, was writing a letter to his mother about these people that he met, some Christian people he met, um, and they were really nice people. Um, he writes them this way, says, They were most hospitable. They have a nice home and belongings and two cute kitties but are so like the rest of us that it is again disheartening. 
We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace. While we profess to know the power, while we profess to, to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with, but we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in the battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be hard, must be had for contact with men, but brass, outspoken boldness is required to take part in, in the comradeship of the cross. We are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. One of the big sins I would fall into, and I think I still do, is there are terms and ideas from Scripture that are embarrassing. Saying the name Jesus in public or to someone. I've noticed I won't say Jesus to my classes at public schools. I always say Christ because I somehow think that sounds more academic or better. And I'm embarrassed. Our God, who is a warrior God, who stands before our enemies, the most masculine man in the universe is Jesus. And I know that part of it is our culture who has made Jesus so effeminate and a ridiculous thing to fear as a commander. We have made pictures of him that makes him look like a soft-skinned, effeminate, woman-like image. We have had theological leaders turn him into this hippie, peacemaker type. And we've jumped right along with it. Prayer. When someone says, I'm going to pray for you, Pray hand emojis. It's almost as if we take it as, oh, they don't, they're not really going to do anything. Or when someone says, I'm praying for you, do we really think there's power in that? I think part of the reason why we are these pacifists, why we have become sideliners, why we have been content with coaching the real wrestlers, is because we really don't believe there's power where there is abundant power. Resurrection life is in us, and we don't believe or trust that power. Prayer, the most powerful act a human can do, we think of it as an excuse. We're not impressed when someone says, I'm praying for you, and you think, wow, something's going to happen. 
Instead, we think, oh, well, it would be better if maybe I had money in my hand or maybe if you gave me a job. or That would mean that's power, right? Not speaking to our almighty commander who is our warrior God. And no one wants to talk about devils and demons, especially in academia, right? One time I asked a student who was getting their degree at Westminster in counseling, and I asked them, what do you do about someone that comes and you have to counsel them and they're demon-possessed? They looked at me like I was crazy, like, oh, well, that doesn't happen anymore. That's part of, you know, that and tongues are gone. (laughs) Because it's not academic, it's not interesting, it's Hollywood, we don't believe it. And I fear that that's part of my sin as well. I want to read for you very quickly in my own way. Uh, We're going to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And this is something that I think Luther really understood because he really had to face these things in a way that we didn't or haven't yet, if I can put it that way. Before I read through that very quickly, I wanted to say, I want want you to understand that this is an unusual church. I don't think sometimes we say that out loud, but I know it's an unusual church because I know Andrew and I know Michael. This is an unusual church. This is not normal. I think sometimes you might come in and you might think, why are they, you know, why is Andrew fighting over this? Why are they so upset over that? It always seems like they're always trying to convict us of something. Why can't they just say, isn't Jesus great, and then be done with the sermon? I mean, there's plenty of denominations that like that. Why do they always bring it down to something that I'm struggling with? Why does it always come down to, why do I always have to repent They seem to say repent a lot. I'm telling you, this is because it's an unusual church. It's unusual because you have pastors that know war. They know you're already in it, and they're trying to wake you up and say, grab your weapons. Had a uh, drill sergeant. Young man was walking around with his Kevlar on, and he had the strap hanging because he saw a movie where that looked kind of cool. And so he was walking around with it hanging down, and the drill sergeant came behind him and smacked him on the back of the head. And you have to understand, this isn't just a normal man smacking on the back of the head. This is, these men were muscular, strong, rugged men. These are not people you want to mess with. And he really put his weight into that. I didn't think that kid was going to get up. He even laid there for a little bit. I'm pretty sure he was unconscious. But he got up. His his helmet, of course, was way, way over there. And he said, I'm going to do that again tomorrow, and you better have your strap on. Now, it seems like a rough, a rough lesson to learn. But that young man's going to be in war one day. And shrapnel is going to be singing right to his head. 
And that helmet will be the only thing that saves his life. And he's going to remember that drill sergeant who smacked him on the back of the head and a little pain helped him remember to do something that will save his life. These men are a little rough because they know the roughness of the authorities and the powers that are coming for you. They're going to be a lot harsher than someone calling you to repent. They want to tear your life apart. They want to make you suffer. They want to prolong your life so that they can make you suffer longer. That's what the powers of darkness want, so that they can bring you down to their hell and make you suffer even more. You think there would be fear in being captured by the Taliban or ISIS. Fear being captured by the enemy who is of the power of the darkness of of this world. You won't even be able to compare in that torture. Luther understood this. He said that our God is a mighty fortress He's a massive wall that never fails. He's our helper amid all the flooding ills that come and destroy this world. And still we have this ancient foe that seeks to curse you. His craft and his power is untouchable. And he's armed with a kind of hate for you. This kind of hate is a cruel hate. And on this earth, there's no one that can stop him. If we, in our own way, tried to stop him, we would lose. If it wasn't for the right man who was on our side, and this is the man that God chose. You might ask who this is. It's Jesus Christ. He is Lord Sabaoth. And he must win the battle. And though this world is filled with demons, devils that seek to destroy you, we don't fear. Because God has willed the truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness is scary, but we're not afraid of him. We can endure his anger because we know he's going to be destroyed one day. And one little word shall make him fall. And for Luther, that word was liar. That word above all earthly powers is no thanks to any other power that abides in this world. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who is on our side. So let everything go, even this life. They can kill your body, but God's truth will never be killed. Because his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your greatness.
for your power, for the kind of might that is our warrior God. Lord, we pray that you will wake us up. Let us be strong soldiers for your army. Lord, we thank you that the power is already there in Christ, and we pray that we will have the courage to use it against the foe. Lord, we ask for a special blessing on these people, and especially this church as it wishes to stand what is for what is right and good in your sight, Lord. And let us win the battle because we have Christ. And in the end, it is not our battle anyway. It is yours. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.